Chapter 5 A Place Beyond Imagining We arrived at the end of the journey on July 3rd, tired, parched, and bewildered, in an indescribable place. Barbed wire, electrified fences, and SS soldiers with their trained dogs waiting on the platform. All of them, man and beast, barking constantly. Our arrival early in the morning in Auschwitz-Birkenau is an infinitely agonizing memory of an astonishing and traumatic new experience. Arriving in this nightmarish place was shocking and disorienting beyond anything we ever saw or could have imagined. One heart-stopping event followed another. Two male prisoners dressed in striped pajama-like uniforms opened the heavy sliding doors of the cattle cars and jumped in. We welcomed the whiff of fresh air that trickled in. One of the men immediately started yelling, Herause, herause, out, out, at the top of his lungs. But the other one whispered to the women who were holding babies or little children's hands, telling them in a hushed, urgent tone, Give the children to the grandmothers. He repeated this many times without any explanation. From what I observed, few if any women heeded his urging. I never forgot this scene. It was decades after the war that a very fine scholar and a daughter of Hungarian Jewish survivors, Gail Ivy Berlin, did research on the Canada Commando, the group of male prisoners responsible for emptying the cattle cars and sorting the new transport's belongings. These workers knew that the grandmothers and the children would be murdered right away, but that young women without children were not sent to die immediately. And so they warned the young mothers to hand over the children to the grandmothers, initiating a form of resistance not formally recognized in Holocaust history. After disembarking, men and women were immediately separated. This was the last time I saw my father, who was 60 years old. A high-ranking SS medical officer, we learned later on, that this might have been the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele, then selected us, the women, by moving his thumbs only left or right. Mothers with children, visibly pregnant women, and all the elderly were sent to the left. My sister-in-law, who was holding her infant son, kept holding him. Being a father didn't automatically sentence a man to death in Birkenau, but being a mother or just holding the little hand of a child, even if the child wasn't your own, meant instant death in the gas chambers. Young women like me and my three sisters, who seemed fit enough for work, were sent to the right. 
We didn't know what either direction meant, that we were actually being sentenced. This was when I saw my mother for the last time, walking arm in arm with Aunt Charlotte, her lifelong best friend. We had to part in an instant without a goodbye or a hug, which I still miss at my advanced age of 91. And yet I was lucky, for I had my three older sisters with me. At least for a little while we were sentenced to live and could stay together. But who could ever be prepared for the unthinkable and the unimaginable we were to face? Shortly after the first and fatal selection, we were taken to an ugly gray building the Nazis deceptively called the sauna. There we were ordered to undress, to the nude. They stripped us of our clothing, then shaved off all the hair on our bodies. Naturally, we felt humiliated and degraded, being forced to stand naked in front of all those SS men, the female guards and their prisoner underlings. We were disinfected with an awful swelling liquid that burned our freshly shaven areas. Our feminine sensitivities were callously trampled on. For years after the war, I would not use bleach. It had a distinct Birkina odor. Then we were allowed to have a two-minute cold shower, and we desperately drank the shower water because we were parched from our journey in the cattle cars. We were then sent outside, wet as we were, no towels. Luckily, it was July and hot, and we dried quickly in the sun. A female capo, who we learned was also a prisoner, but with some authority, gave us something to cover our naked bodies with. There was a huge pile of used clothing, disinfected from lice, but otherwise mostly dirty, from which the capo would randomly pick a garment, and throw it to us. It did not matter if it fit, and if we complained, we were beaten. I received a very long, light blue nightgown with a pretty flower pattern. It was much too long for me to walk in. I looked around, wondering fearfully where my sisters were. And yet... They were all around me looking like weird strangers. Only their voices were familiar. In spite of our utter misery, we burst out laughing, bald and dressed in dirty rags. We were quite a tragicomic sight. Bershke, always the practical one, tore a large segment of material from the bottom of my nightgown just below the knee. She tore the cloth into four long, narrow scarves to cover, in turban fashion, our bald heads. Instant magic! We felt less humiliated and just a tiny bit feminine again. 
The cloth also protected our freshly shaved scalps from the searing sun. After this ordeal, we were marched to the section of the camp that would become our home for a few months, B3 or Mexico. It had been quickly constructed to hold some of the almost half a million Hungarian Jews who were deported in a short amount of time, but the construction was not completed. It was the least equipped camp in Birkenau. Many of the barracks were completely empty with no bunk beds. With hundreds of women in each barracks, we slept on the bare wooden floors tightly packed in. If one person wanted to turn over, the whole row had to turn as well. Avi, Clary, Bershke, and I cried through that first night along with all the others. I think the next time we cried wasn't until our tightly knit foursome was broken up. The day started early in the morning when it was still chilly outdoors, but we all had to go to roll call, Zelapel, regardless of the weather. Roll call was a torture in itself. If one prisoner was missing from the count, we stood there, rain or shine, until the person was found, usually dead. Another roll call was conducted in the evening. After the morning roll call, we would receive a hot brown liquid that hardly resembled coffee. One incident remains etched in my mind. On this particular day, Irma Grise, the well-known sadist and brutal of Zeherin, senior female overseer, came to inspect the roll call. One feeble prisoner, a young girl, was about four seconds late. Irma Grise, only 20 years old at the time, pointed her out and with a crooked forefinger indicated to her to come forward and stand near her. Trembling, the girl obeyed. Irma started to kick her with her highly polished black leather boots she always wore. She kicked and kicked the girl mercilessly until that poor soul expired right under her feet while hundreds of us looked on, frozen and impotent with fear and numbed by extreme disgust. It did my revengeful soul a great deal of good when I learned after the war that this monster was captured in Bergen-Belsen and was tried and executed by the British military court in December 1945, along with a few others of her ilk. Or, considering her dastardly acts, was a quick death too kind for her? During these dreaded twice-daily roll calls, I was always the second or third in a row of five so that my sisters could shield me from the cold, the heat, or the wind. I can't remember who our designated fifth was from the day to day, but eventually she too became family. 
There was no running water or proper toilet facilities in B3, not even a latrine. Certain corner areas were cordoned off and equipped with a pail. That was it. I can't recall what we used for toilet paper. A water truck brought us drinking water once a day, and there was near rioting to be able to obtain a cupful of water, and we were all parched from the constant heat. Since we didn't have running water in Mexico, we were taken to another camp for a shower once a week. During one of these walks to the other camp, as we passed some lumber being piled high by male prisoners, I heard someone yell, Yusuf, which had been my nickname in high school back in Debrecen. I looked up, and sure enough, it was one of my former classmates who astonishingly recognized me in rags, head shaved. How had he recognized me? He called out to me. On the way back, look up. I'll have something for you. Indeed, on the way back, he threw down a small package. In it was a small piece of real, rose-scented soap, two sewing needles, and some thread. Real treasures in that depraved world we were in. Avi's talented hands made very good use of the needles, mending our torn clothes. The piece of soap which I shared with my sisters rekindled some very pleasant memories. I worried, though, we never saw my classmate again. I hope no SS overseer had noticed what he did for me and punished him for it. Bushke was preoccupied with our survival, keenly aware of what was going on around us. She understood, clearly, that in Burkina, murder was taking place on a large scale. Among the first things she did was borrow a knife and get hold of a piece of wood from which she made four spoons. With these spoons, she literally forced Fedor's younger siblings by instructing us to hold our noses and swallow the awful-smelling, looking and tasting Dörgemüse, soup, a liquid made from dried vegetable that was dished up to us as something edible. We often found bugs, little stones, broken pieces of glass, and grass in it, besides the ever-present turnip. Someone suggested that the Nazis had mowed the grass somewhere and that all the cuttings were thrown into hot water, and that's what was served to us. I can still hear Bershka's voice. We must survive. Eat, eat, please, eat. At noon, prisoners delivered the food in large, heavy cauldrons to the central area. Bershka managed to become one of the people delivering the food, which meant that she received an extra piece of bread. At first, we didn't want to eat the Dörgemüse. 
But eventually we became so hungry that we ate anything. Initially, we had one bowl that we shared among five people. My sisters, me, and another person also became like family. The first person in our lineup would get the bowl filled and then everybody would take a sip. Later on, each of us received our own bowl. Usually, people would rush to get the food, but we realized that the thicker part was at the bottom, so it was wise to wait. There were often scuffles around who would get the thick bottom food. For supper, we received a loaf of bread for five people, and someone would divide the bread into five equal pieces. Everyone watched to make sure the portions were even, that no one would get a millimeter more or less than anyone else. We also received one slice of salami or a small piece of cheese, usually a type called quargli or margarine. Hunger drove a lot of people to steal. There were stories of mothers stealing from daughters and vice versa. If you didn't finish your bread right away, you had to hide it under your head at night or somewhere else safe to protect it from thieves. Self-preservation came first in Birkenau. As the days went by, we became aware of a strange stench permeating the air day and night. We did wonder where those who had been sent to the left at our arrival were. Our parents, Jenner's wife, Magda, with their infant son, Peter, cousins with their young children. We were told we would see them later. Lies, all shameful, unadulterated lies. I am not sure exactly how the knowledge reached us that those sent to the left were murdered in gas chambers right away or overnight, their bodies burned in the adjacent crematorium. Many bodies were also burned in open pyres when the Hungarian Jewish transports came, often one after another as the crematorial were overloaded. That was the strange stench in our nostrils day and night, the burning flesh of our beloved family members. Even though we lived with that knowledge, our hearts broken, there was no time or opportunity to mourn. Every ounce of our being was needed for survival and survival alone. Morning came much later. Our existence in Birkenau, this most devastating place on earth, a place beyond all imagining, was precarious. Loud screaming by the lager leaders of Achtung, Achtung, attention, attention, always sends shivers down our spines and inevitably meant selections the most gut-wrenching times, worse even than hunger. We had to file in front of a camp physician, possibly the angel of death himself, Mengele, 
usually naked for inspection. Those who were considered too skinny or who showed signs of illness or had a rash were sent to their death by gas. The fear in anticipating these events engulfed me at all times. We never knew what could happen at a selection, which one of us would be sent to work somewhere in Germany or to another camp or to be guessed. My biggest challenge was overcoming a fear of remaining alone. My stomach was always in a knot Bowels ready to burst because I felt safe only near my sisters. Eventually, I developed a stomach ulcer. There we were, facing moral tests and threats to our existence daily. But I cannot recall us four sisters ever fighting about anything. Mostly, we worried. Our concern for each other withstood the most appalling and challenging conditions. Looking back, I see how each of us sisters endured every degrading and humiliating treatment in Birkenau while supporting each other and also with the skills, dispositions, and apprehensions each of us came with. Bushke proved to be a pillar of strength, always compassionate with a helping hand or word, just like at home. The most decent human being I ever knew and one whom I loved and admired. She was and is my greatest role model. Clary was very fragile, like a delicate flower, and from the very beginning without a smile. She was now in the place she feared most and had wanted to avoid at all costs, and almost did, if it had not been for my father's insensitivity to her fears. Her melancholy would deepen with each passing day, though she expressed little emotion one way or another. Avi, easygoing and phlegmatic as always, found school friends from way back when and chatted away her hunger as much as she could or repaired thrown clothes with a needless my classmate gave us. She also had a very pleasant singing voice and sang from time to time with some of her friends to everyone's sheer delight. Most of the women in the camp stopped menstruating pretty soon after our arrival. In a way, we were glad from a sanitary point of view. Some believed that the Nazis had put something in our food or drink to stop our menstrual flow. Others thought we stopped menstruating because our bodies were in shock. I remember reading an early memoir in which the survivors surmised that this was one of Hitler's rewards for Jewish women not to be able to have children even if they did survive. Fortunately, that was not the case. Every day we witnessed people dying, 
Some died from hunger, some from disease, some from exhaustion. During the never-ending roll call, some of the weaker girls would collapse and die right there and then. I saw young girls who could potentially be my classmates dropping to the ground. My memory is still vivid. Skeletal arms flailing, eyes moving in their sockets, in what seemed like a silent plea to us, the still living, to help them. But we were powerless, and as they were dying, they defecated. These were dreadful, distressing scenes I didn't fully understand at the time. We were incredulous when we heard that the near-dead would bypass the gas chambers and be placed straight into the crematoria, into the ovens to burn. Sometimes the dead were left unburied for a time, and eventually inmates who were assigned to this work would come around to collect the cadavers. And these images gave me nightmares for a long time after the Holocaust and again as I started to speak publicly about what I had witnessed. These are weighty, gruesome memories, difficult to shed, if I ever could. There was the Schittwagen, as we called it, which came by every day as we stood for roll call, it was used to collect and carry the excrement from the pails that served as toilets around the barracks. Male prisoners pulled these wagons like horses. A reliable rumor had it that the Nazi officers would ask doctors and other professionals and intellectuals to step forward, giving them the impression that they had office jobs for them in SS fashion, twinning humiliation with deception. These men were assigned to handle the excrement and pull the shit wagon. At first, we were continually appalled by the new information we learned. However, the shock didn't last, and after a little while, we became used to the fact that we were in this dreadful environment. Those of us in Mexico did not work. We were like pigs in a holding pen. On some days, the heat was unbearable. There were no trees under which we could find some shade, some relief. We had to stay outside the barracks during the day, and we were idle and bored and of course thirsty. There was not enough water to drink, and sunstroke was a serious problem. It is difficult to find the appropriate words to describe our pitiful existence. And yet, as long as we were together, four sisters, we felt fortunate. Our time was spent talking and sitting around in the dusty outdoors. Occasionally, we sang sad melodies. Luckily, there were some women with beautiful singing voices. From time to time, a few of the women 
who had managed extensive households in the past, spoke and even boasted about their cooking and baking skills, even trying to exchange recipes. Hungarian women had a reputation for baking excellent pastries. After the Holocaust, there was a theory about women in Birkenau and other camps cooking and baking with their mouths. The theory was that thinking and talking about cooking was a survival tool. I was asked if we young girls enjoyed listening to these conversations about food. My honest answer was no. Some may have felt that these conversations were helpful, but I saw that they were upsetting for the younger women, who felt even hungrier and yearned even more for the unreachable as we listened to them. Some talented prisoners drew and wrote poetry, but to do so you needed to somehow get a scrap of paper and a stub of pencil, items that were very difficult to obtain. It was also risky to draw or write, and you could be killed for it. It had to be done quietly in strict secret, unless you were talented enough to do portraits for the vain as a staff. If the Nazis discovered that you had a special talent they could use, there was a chance it would save your life. I heard that if someone played a musical instrument that was good enough to be accepted in the Auschwitz Orchestra, it could mean survival. The musicians mainly played for the entertainment of the SS camp officers, but also for the laborers as they marched in and out of the camp to their work sites. Some claim, but I'm not sure if it's true, that music was sometimes played at the gruesome time when people were marched into the gas chambers. One day at the beginning of August, we became aware of something very frightening happening in the camp next to us in B2E, known as the Gypsy Family Camp where the Rome over held. There was intense yelling and the barking of SS guards and their dogs, and the screaming and crying of men, women, and children as they resisted being evacuated and eventually murdered. I am an ear witness to that event. I heard it all and I was terribly frightened along with the others in our camp, thinking that we might be gassed next. We had no calendar, but I think it was a bit later, around the middle of August 1944, that there was another huge selection. Avi and Clary were selected and sent somewhere. We didn't know where. They were in poor condition, especially Clary, but to the camp doctors, they looked healthy enough to work. We cried bitter tears. Thankfully, Bershke and I were still together, but we were no longer a family. I now slept with Bershke in a row with three strangers. 
Bushka was my sole family now and my guardian angel. Some of the prisoners in the camp spoke Russian, and they helped my Bushka learn the language. We already knew that the Soviet army was coming closer and closer. Bushka wanted to be able to tell her liberators in Russian, give me work and bread. She taught me that too, and I still remember those Russian words. Shortly after Avi and Clary were gone, I got sick. I developed arthritis in my hips, which I still suffer from today. I was in terrible constant pain and it was difficult for me to stand during roll call. It was also difficult to stand up and sit down. After a while, I just couldn't function. But leaving me in the barrack would mean that I was sick and at risk of being selected to be gassed. And I feared selections more than I feared pain. Finally, I had no choice. Bershke brought me to the Revere, the infirmary, and they admitted me. Here, one barely had one's own space. There was one long bunk, and each sick person lay close to the next, almost touching. Sometimes I woke up in the morning to find that the person beside me was dead. Every morning, a nurse and a doctor, both dressed in white, came to examine us. The nurse would take my temperature, and the doctor would look at me and then write something on the card at the foot of the bunk. It was always the same whether you had a fever or not. You were given two aspirins a day, one in the morning and one at night. As it happens, aspirin is good for curing arthritic pain. But you didn't know at what point those in charge might decide to clear out the revere and send you to the gas chambers. The death truck, as we called it, with its huge headlights, would come every single night throwing frightening shadows on the wall through the windows. The orderlies would come in and pull patients off the bunk, mostly the dead and near-dead ones. I never knew when it might be my turn. This was a singularly terrifying experience. While I was in the revere, Bushka would bring me the extra piece of bread she earned for carrying those heavy food cauldrons. I was reluctant to take it, but she insisted. She didn't want me to lose too much weight and become skinnier than I already was, and she would sit there watching me until I ate every last morsel. I'm sure those slices of bread helped. Most likely, she saved my life once again. When reflecting back on my time in the Revere, I wonder why the Nazis maintained it and seemingly kept accurate records of the patients. Perhaps it is because they wanted to have some kind of proof that they took proper care of prisoners' health, though it was a deceptive sort of health care that they practiced, to put it mildly. After two weeks, I was allowed to leave. I wore the same clothes morning and night, so there was no need to get dressed. As I waited for a guard who would take me back to the barracks, 
I stood at the window enjoying the sun shining on my face. When the guard appeared, he started yelling at me. What are you doing there? I'm enjoying the sunshine, I replied. Suddenly, he slapped me so hard on the face that I fell to the floor. You have no right to enjoy the sunshine, he barked. This was the only time I recall being beaten by anyone while I was incarcerated. The important thing was that I felt much better, no pain whatsoever. Blessed experience. Our languishing continued as we did nothing and hoped to survive one day at a time. By then, we were used to the worst, though it was hard to get used to the hunger and the fear of separation from Bushke, the unyielding hot sun without any shade and seeing the dying and dead around me. But so far at least, Bushke and I were still alive. We didn't know what happened to Avi and Clary, and there was no sense in speculating. We only hoped they were alive somewhere. I was born on the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and in 1944, my sweet 16th birthday was spent in the shadows of the gas chambers. A bitter place indeed. Bershke gave me a hug and a kiss, and we celebrated the fact that we were still alive and together. Then came Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, and a clandestine and haunting Kol Nidre prayer with the women of Birkenau that would stay with me forever. Sometime after Yom Kippur, I became extremely ill with high fever, diarrhea, and dysentery. I was terribly weak and could not think clearly. As fate would have it, while I was sick, there was another big selection. I don't know the exact date. I vaguely recall that I was selected to go with a group of prisoners and we were told to sit down naked and just wait. I have a hazy memory of seeing Bershke far away from me with another group of prisoners looking in my direction and crying. And I wondered why. Eventually, her group had to leave and she was out of my sight and I was still sitting there with this group minus my Bershke, my guardian angel. Now I was alone. Fortunately, I didn't comprehend my grave situation. I knew that my good leather shoes had been taken away. They were the only thing I was allowed to keep when we came to Auschwitz, the only thing I still had from home. All of us, all those around me, were without shoes. I didn't understand a thing about what all that meant. I wasn't aware that we were waiting there to be taken to the gas chambers. I don't know how long we sat there. Finally, a couple came with some fresh, dirty clothing and told us to put it on along with some clogs, shoes that had a wooden sole and canvas top. 
They look like boots and were heavy and difficult to walk in with our bare feet. But we had to get up and march. Along with the others, I dragged myself to another camp in the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex, the women's compound. We stayed there one night only. To my great amazement and luck, there were two sisters there whom I knew from my home city of Debrecen, Edith and Shari Feig. I had attended middle school with Edith, and Shari, as she would later tell me, had been my brother Mikros's secret and frequent date. I was the same age as Edith, and Shari was seven years older. We were lying beside each other that one night on an upper bunk. They saw how very sick I was and asked me, Are you alone, Yutko? I answered that I was. Then Shadi suggested that the three of us stick together. Just stay with us, she said. I think Shadi took pity on me because I was so sick. But I felt so much safer not being alone. The next morning, we were put in cattle cars again, and the anti-group was taken to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in western Germany near Celle. From then on, Shari, Edith, and I became inseparable camp sisters. We stuck together until the very end. Sistering with them certainly helped me to get better, and in fact, I recovered completely. A sense of belonging and knowing that someone cared whether I woke up in the morning or not was imperative for sustaining my hope and ultimately saving my life.